As the lights come up and those baskets finish passing around, why don't you make your way to the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 1, the Hispanic prophet of the Old Testament, Hosea. That was a joke. All right. Hosea, we are entering a series that will take better part of a year, maybe more, to walk through as we look at the major message of the minor prophets. I've chosen to call this series through the minor prophets, Respond, because that's what we as the New Testament church do to the minor prophets. We, we respond. The Israelites, as they read it, they repent and return, but that isn't necessarily the truth in your life. Um, you can't return to somewhere you've never been, and for so many of us, uh, when it comes to God, we've never been with him. And so for us, others, many in this room, we've never left him. And so what are we to do with books like these? They are powerful little books. They cover a wide range of extra issues like judgment and justice, social issues. Amos will talk about poverty and the poor. But when you look at Hosea, right, the response is to this truth. I'm going to give it to you now, right? It is you responding to God's unfailing love for an unfaithful people. Now, I'll say that with me. Respond to God's unfailing love for an unfaithful people. Now, that's meant to strike a chord like a guitar on the stage. That's meant to strike a chord in the heart of the redeemed who have been paid for. They're their lives have been purchased by Jesus Christ. That in your sin, while you were an enemy, while you ignored him, while you didn't even, in some ways, know that he existed, he did everything necessary in history to get a hold of you, to get you to the place where you would say yes to his marriage proposal. And in this particular book, he's going to do it through a very graphic illustration. But as we begin, I simply want you to respond Similar to what we talked about in the table, the communion table, I want you to respond to the question of where you and God are. On a scale of one to five, one being we're not very good, not very close, five being we're great. And, and think about other relationships. For instance, how would you rate your relationship with your supervisor at work on a scale of one to five? One being not so good, five being great. What about your spouse? What about your kids? What about your siblings? What about the rest of your family? What about your coworkers? How would you rate those relationships? Now, with that kind of mentality in mind, connect that to the relationship you have with God, right? Your relationships in life are meant to be a signpost to your relationship to Him. Your relationship with your spouse ought to connect to your relationship with Him. But think about that and evaluate with you and God, how do you rate your relationship with God based on who He is more than merely what he's done. Think about that. Based on his nature more than his nurture. He is an unfailing lover. How's your intimacy with that truth and with him in that way? Or is it a, for you, some ways, a, a spiritual well that you want to throw some coins into and see if you get something out of it? Prime a pump of some sort of divine provision. Now, I say that, I don't mean that harshly because... We all do that. We all approach God in recognition of him being somewhat a means to an end instead of the end and of itself. But I want you to evaluate that truth. Don't rate it based on what he has done for you lately. Rather, 
base your judgment of how close you and God are in relationship to your intimacy with him. What's your number? Is it a one, a two, a three, a four, or a five? Now, what we're going to look at today is in light of that evaluation, how do you move forward with that? How do you respond to this to move from a three to a four, from a four to a five, from a one to a two? This is a very strange relationship we have before us in Hosea chapter one. If, you, if you've read this text before, you would agree with that. It is the marriage relationship between a prophet and a prostitute. Here's, now, really, there's two problems with that. One, Hosea, the prophet, is told by God to marry a prostitute. That's a problem. And number two, her name is Gomer. Who wants to marry a woman named Gomer? All right. With that comes a truth, and we're going to try to get to the middle of this truth. But I want you to notice something first, is that it is strange, but this is not unique just to Hosea. It is an abnormal covenant between a man who will be answering the call of God and a woman who will be answering the call of men. Hosea was called to preach. Gomer was called to, the prophet was a man of God. The prostitute was a woman of the night. The prophet was a lover of one. The prostitute was a lover of many. The prophet was saved for God. The prostitute was estranged from God. The prophet was a name known in time. The prostitute was a name known in town. The prophet stands up for righteousness. The prostitute lays down in unrighteousness. But the strangeness of that relationship is eclipsed by the one who initiated this relationship. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Verse 1, we read, The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, there in the north. This is a long period of time. And during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of harlotry. So this is a strange relationship, but the one who actually initiated it, sanctioned this strange relationship, overshadows the strangeness of the relationship. Did you get the fact that it's God who instructed Hosea to marry this woman? Why in the world would God do that? This is typical of the Christian life where we think or we say that um, following God ought to be easy, and it's not. Following God ought to make sense, but it sometimes doesn't. Following God ought to, at least in our minds, connect or parallel with what we understand about his nature. This does not parallel with what we understand about his nature. A man of God, go marry a prostitute. It's a mistake to think that everything God asks us to do will be easy, make sense, appear that God is acting in relationship to his own nature. There's more that God is doing here. God is in the business of speaking to men, and he does it many times in shocking ways. Life is full of shocking events. From the things that we go through in life that are so great to the things that are so harsh, God has been doing this. It was strange when God asked Abraham to take his, his promised son and sacrifice him, slice his throat. That seems to be in contrast to the nature of God. Why would God, would God ask you to kill your kid? Ooh, harsh. It was strange when God told Moses with the army of, of Pharaoh behind him to take just a, a rod and stick it out over the water and the waters would part. God, that's a strange way 
to save Israel. It was strange when God spoke through the mouth of a donkey to save an unsaved prophet's life. It was strange when God asked Noah to build an ark which was three football fields wide and large and there had never been rain on the history of the planet at that point. That is strange. It was strange when God asked the Jews to slaughter animal after animal in graphic display to point to the truth that there has to be for the forgiveness of sins, there has to be the shedding of blood. That is a strange way to make that point. It is also strange when the walls of Jericho fell because men marched and blew some trumpets. Listen, this isn't the first time God has asked a prophet to do something strange. Did you know that God asked Ezekiel to eat a scroll, a book which would represent him eating the word of God and then go to Israel, ingest it, bring it in, live it, and then go to Israel and share it? He asked Ezekiel to lay on his side, his left side, for 390 days and then switch to your, his right side for 40 days to represent the number of days, the number of years Israel and Judah would be punished. Ezekiel was asked to go to a, a, a boneyard and preach over the boneyard as a supernatural image because the bones came back to life and he resurrected all those bones. Jeremiah was asked to construct a yoke of an animal fit with all the straps and the and the and the um, uh, the the leather and the weight and everything and wear it around his neck to demonstrate the yoke of bondage that would be placed on Israel's neck. Listen to Isaiah 20. Then the Lord said, "My servant Isaiah has been walking around naked and barefoot for the last three years. Praise the Lord, He hasn't asked me to do that." He says, "This is a sign. Walking around naked for three years, Isaiah is a sign." a symbol of terrible troubles I will bring upon Egypt and Ethiopia. Let us not forget what God asked the ultimate prophet of all prophets, Jesus, to do. That he would be nailed to a six by nine piece of wood to take away the sins of the world. That is a strange way to save the world. But in this text and in every one of those truths I just mentioned, they might be strange, but they are powerful. This is meant to shock you. This is meant to bring you to a place where you cannot ignore this message. It's, we are privy to a wedding between a prophet and a prostitute in order to send to the nation a message that they cannot ignore. Cannot ignore. So let's begin. Hosea. The name Hosea means God is salvation. The name Isaiah, the name Joshua, the name Jesus are all basically the same name. And they mean God is salvation. Now, this is a book of judgment and wrath. How does wrath mix with judgment? Now, I told you last week that to love someone requires you to also hate the thing that hurts them. And God's love and his mercy is in perfect unity with his wrath, his wrath and his judgment. This nation, through this prophet Hosea, is about to know the wrath of God because of their violation of him in idol worship. The book is titled, God is Salvation, but they know first judgment. They will know judgment because of the Mosaic law, but they will know mercy because there is something higher than the Mosaic law. Do you know what that is? If you know your Bible, what is the higher thing than the Mosaic law? The Abrahamic covenant, where in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is promised, in your seed, the Messiah, will come the blessing of the nations. All the nations shall be blessed through the Messiah. Israel is a Christian nation. 
Their hope is not in Moses and in law, but in the Messiah and in the lover who is God. This outrageous, unrealistic, unconditional lover. This is the fulfillment of circumcision. That through a Isaac and a Jacob and on down the line, through all the way to Messiah, that the seed would be protected, to be provided to the world. No, no, the Israel is a Christian nation. Now, God is going to, in this time, raise up some writing prophets. We've called this in Bible study the Ah-Me Prophets. The Ah-Me Prophets. God had sent Elisha. He had sent Elijah. He had sent Haziel of Assyria to judge Israel. He's about to raise up here, right after this book, he's going to raise up Assyria in 722 and bring him into exile, the ten tribes of the north. And then a few years later in 606... To 586, he is going to raise up Babylon to bring the two northern tribes into exile. You don't tempt God. He has said for hundreds of years that he would punish his people for what they're doing. He would give wrath against the thing that is hurting them. When did this begin? It began at 1500 B.C. When Moses comes down from the mountain and the Israelites have made a golden calf in the in in that image in order to represent God. They had made an idol. And right then, God should have, but he didn't. He could have, but he didn't judge them. 800 years later, he brings about his judgment, his wrath. We've got an Exodus, we have a Leviticus, we have a Deuteronomy. It says, if you violate me with idols, I promise as a good father, I will send you into timeout. I will send you out of the land. And that came true 800 years after the first idolatry began. Now, if you were God and you had that much material to work with, you and me, we would have stopped at 1500 BC. It would have been, the Bible would have ended with, and Moses came down from the mountain, game over. <laughs> but that's not the case because God is merciful. He rises, raises up. He's doing something more with the people of Israel than we first see when we first look at it. He raises up writing prophets, the Ah-Me prophets, A-H-M-I, Amos and, Ho A-H, Amos and Hosea in the north, right? M-I, Micah, right? And Isaiah in the south. And these prophets in the north and in the south, these Ah-Me prophets say to these people, you've gone too far and get ready, it's coming. It's what a parent does after you've warned your child and you've warned your child. We had some, we have some guests in from out of town, the Hartmans are here. They spent the night with us, and they, our kids and their kids act like cousins, and I, we, they were going late into the night, and I came up there one time, and then I came up there a second time, and then I sent my wife a text, it's your turn, and she came up. and as a parent, you say, ah, oh, me, you're going to get it, you're going to get it, and at some point, you're a bad parent if you don't follow through with what you said, amen, and God is a good father, so here it comes, ah, oh, me, Israel. Here come the Assyrians in 722. Here come the Babylonians in 605. My patience is done. Time for wrath now. Seek the Lord while he may be found, Psalm 32 says. And surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach you. It's too late. You know, it is best that you learn by precepts, not by pain. You get to choose how you learn. Are you going to learn through pain or are you going to learn through precept? God says to these Israelites, I'm going to give you a writing. I'm going to give you a writing prophet and you can roll it up in a scroll and you can stick it in your back pocket. And when you are in timeout, when you are being punished in Babylon, you can pull it out and you can say, yep, that's what God promised. He's faithful. 
That's why you, when somebody goes to jail, you hand them a Bible, right? To remind them that what mama tried to do in their life was right. What mama told them, they should have listened to. So to quote the great theologian Merle Haggard, one and only rebel child from a family meek and mild, my mama seemed to know what lay in store. Despite all my Sunday learning, towards the bad I kept on turning till mama couldn't hold me anymore. And I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but mama tried, mama tried. Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I deny. That leaves me only me to blame because mama tried. All right, so as we look at this book, this is God being faithful in his warnings. Now, let me highlight a, one point before we start walking through it. When it comes to the prophets, there's five time periods that the prophet looks through the lens of. The first, he sometimes calls to mind, God calls to mind God's uh, past promises. Sometimes they point to Israel's present sin. Sometimes they look down towards future judgment, in this case. Sometimes they will then look towards a distant act of mercy where Christ will come and he will die and provide provision. And sometimes they look to that ultimate final glory when he returns and Jesus reigns. So as you read it, it's going to move. This book of Hosea is going to move between these five, past, present, future, distant, final. It's going to move, and it's going to shift like gears, and it's going to be so smooth. You're not even going to hear the gear shifting because that's how God views it. He's in the Goodyear blimp above the parade, and he sees all that's happening in time in your life. And when it comes down to it, he sees all this. So verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Biri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, that's in the north. During the days of Jeroboam, speaking prophet during that time was Jonah, by the way. The sons of Joash, king of Israel, long time. Verse 2, Hosea is going to have to experience God's heart. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go Take to yourself a wife of harlotry. Here's what we're going to do with this section. We're going to say, what does the prophet represent? What does the prostitute represent? What does the prophecy present? And how should the people of God in today, in the New Testament, we're not Israel, so how should we respond to this prophecy? First, if you notice, the prophet represents God. That's your simple little truth there. God, who is what? Faithful. God is faithful, offering himself with unfailing love with an unfaithful woman. It is evident that God arranged this, commissioned this marriage to be a visible, physical symbol of the behavior and the activity of a nation of Israel as they related in their relationship to God. God was trying to tell them something. God was ensuring that this message of the prophet would not be obscured by guesses, that there would be no confusion over what the Lord wanted them to understand. God told Hosea to find a wife, but he told him ahead of time that she would be unfaithful. And catch this, catch this. And he chose her anyway. Feel that. God chose you knowing that you would not be faithful to him. And he chose you Anyway, God initiated this strange relationship. Although she would bear Hosea many children, some of whom would not have the, the baby daddy's faith. It would have the other faith face of the other person, not Hosea. He would look and say, those aren't my eyes. That's not my complexion. But in obedience to God, knowing that that would be the case, Hosea married Gomer. A living example of 
God and his relationship with a nation that would turn his back on them. So this, this man, this prophet represents faithfulness. He represents a faithful, unfailing love for an unfaithful woman. He knew she was going to cheat. He knew she was going to leave him. He knew when he saw the kids that they didn't have his eyes. But watch this. Hear this. He married her. He loved her anyway. Does that sound familiar? Hosea would provide for her, protect her, clothe her, care for her. In spite of all that, she still cheated. In spite of all that, he still offered himself to her. This prophet made visible the character and the nature of a God in a way that you had to see that it was God working through Hosea. This prophet represents that. But the prostitute represents unfaithfulness. Keep reading, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry. Now he leaps forward. She's going to have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So again, he will look at the kids and they, will, they do not look like him. Hosea is going to feel like God. He's going to feel like God. When God looks at his children, in the case of Israel, they look like Baal. They don't look like God. They look like this foreign God. Verse 3, so he went and took Gomer. Now, Gomer, her name means perfection or completion. Uh, by the way, we read here, if this lady comes into my office for counseling, I would say she's a perfect mess. Or, or to make a joke, she's Gomer's pile. This is Gomer's pile of mess. That's what that means. Right? She is a mess, and she gets it honestly. Keep reading. The daughter of Deblayim, and she conceived and bore him a son. The daughter of Deblayim means in Hebrew a double layer of great cake, which speaks of one completely taken up, given to sensuality. She is, she is a woman whose daddy taught her to be sensual. She did not have a daddy that taught her to be chaste and modest. He taught her to live it up and live it large and soak it all up while you could. She, get it, she got it honestly. Her daddy issues came from her father. Question, can God use something that brings us low to bring us high? Yeah. See, when people come to me and they confess something that's bringing them low, I had this a few months ago. Some ladies confessed to having low self-esteem. I'm like, well, tell me about your life and I'll tell you if it's legit. She told me about her life and I said, well, that low self-esteem is legitimate. You're living lowly. Why would you? I'm not going to tell you feel good about your low living. It's called reaping and sowing. If you sow looseness, if you sow lowliness, if you sow wickedness, guess how you feel, right? That's how you should feel. You should feel low. You should feel loose. You should feel wicked. That's, that's, a, that's a natural consequence of how you live. It's meant to get your attention. This is meant to get your attention. So can God use pain to raise us up? Absolutely, yes. Verse 4. He's going to say, now you're going to have three kids, and I want to give you the name of your children. God says, you're going to name them this. And the Lord said to him, I want you to name your firstborn Jezreel. Now let me explain that. This is like God telling you, hey, I want you to name your first kid 9-11. I want you to name your kid, you remember in the 1980s, the Branch Davidians? I want you to name your kids Branch Davidians. Or, what, 10 years ago, I want you to name your firstborn Columbine. Right? Manson. Hey, Manson, get over here. Right? It's a horrible name to give to a child because it is a time in the history of Israel when a great slaughter occurred. Right? Jezreel is the place where Jehu, the Hebrews pronounce it Yehu, but I just can't say that. He's a Yehu. <laughs> Sounds the wrong word, but that's how they pronounce it. But anyway, Yehu 
was raised up by God to obliterate Ahab's descendants. Now that was a proper prophecy, a proper instruction. Ahab and Jezebel were horrible. And the prophet said there will come a day when Ahab, his blood will pour out in a chariot where he dies in battle. And Jezebel will be thrown off a wall and her, she will burst and the dogs will eat up her entrails. Horrible destruction of these two, but they were that bad. They were enemies of God. What you see in the Bible, all throughout the Bible, is you do not want to be an enemy of God. You do not want to be on his bad side. But in the process, what God does with the enemies of God is he takes them to a cross and he nails them to that cross. So I was an enemy of God and Jesus took upon himself my enemy status and he became both lawgiver and law meter. He met the law's righteous requirements for me. You don't want to be an enemy of God because they take it to a crucifixion cross. And I am no longer his enemy because of what Jesus did for me. Amen? But here, Yehu is told to obliterate Ahab's lineage. Wipe them out. God said, wipe them off the dinner plate. All the scraps gone. And he took out the lineage. The problem with that is Jehu, Yehu went too far. He killed Jotham, Joram. He killed Ahaziah, the king of Judah. He killed all of Ahaziah's relatives. These are of the Davidic line, several lackeys from the, Be- the Baal cult. And though the execution of the Baal servants was absolutely um, legit in accord with God's will, he went way too far. He left a destructive slaughter of people. The descendants in this case were almost wiped out. But verse 4, and yet a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. That's where the bloodshed began. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Jehu, his line, Israel in the northern kingdom, her kingdom. I gave him a chance. I gave him a chance. Jehu wouldn't follow. Israel wouldn't follow. 800 years I gave him a chance. I had plenty of material. But Jehu, Jehu went after a career. He went after vengeance. And vengeance is mine, not Jehu's. On that day, verse 5, I will break the bow of Israel, the ten tribes of the north, in the valley of Jezreel. Question. Sermon within a sermon. Jehu went after career instead of the Lord. A nation, can a nation, is it possible for a nation's political, economic, military might to fail because they abandon the one who brought them to the dance among the nations in the beginning? Yes, absolutely. Oh, not America. No, not us. God brought us to the dance in this world as a nation. Uh, You can argue with the roots of how big the sea is on the word Christian and as a Christian nation. But we have a lot of spiritual roots, a lot of biblical truth in our founding fathers and the things that they did. Will our political, economic, military fight might be abandoned because we abandoned the one who brought us to the dance? Yes. In this case, Jezreel is an example of that. Verse 6, then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Loruhamah. Ruhamah means uh, pity or compassion. So name your first kid, name the first kid defeated. I, I brought you in as a nation and you danced with other girls at the dance and now I am, I am, you're defeated in Jezreel. Here, it's the idea of being destroyed. You, there is no pity. Low is the negative. Low, Ruhamah. No, no compassion. It's done. You're defeated and you're destroyed. 
No more compassion. Think about this. Patience, when it comes to God, is not one of his omni-attributes. Have you heard the phrase omni-attributes? Finish these for me. Omnipotence, that the word omni means all. Omni is all. What does potence mean? Powerful. God is all powerful. Almighty, we might say. Omniscience means all what? Knowing. Omnipresence means all present. That's an easy one. All present. Uh, What about omnibenevolent? He is all loving. Is there one, is there a fifth one that's all patient? No. Not one of the attributes of God is he is omnipatient. His patience runs out. Because he's a good father and that's how it should be. It would actually be bad of him to not go through with what he said. So what does that mean? It means don't tempt the Lord your God. What does that mean? Don't push him. Don't tempt him. The Bible does not teach a karma of day to day, however, return. That if you do this, God's going to do this. If you do that, God's going to add to you here. He's going to take away from you here. No, no, this kind of This kind of discipline takes a long time. God took 800 years. That is not karma, right? Lo ruhama, my patience has ended. This is what parents do. They escalate, right? They they, they first, I know my mom and dad, are they here today? All right, good. Are they back there? All right, I would would get in trouble. And that's shocker, I know. Never get in trouble. I was the perfect child. But they would say, Chris, and if I didn't respond, right, what would they say? Christopher, Brian, right? Adam, what's your middle name? Ethan? Ian, right? Adam, Ian. And then if you didn't respond at that point, you get the last name. Adam, Ian, Smith, right? And it escalates. There's shots, warning shots over the bow. There's, there's guardrails at the railroad track. Ding, 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 don't go there. I told that's not good for you. That's bad for you. That's not what I want. Ding, 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 ding. And they crawl over and you crawl over because... He gives you those shot warnings because God is gracious, but he also, he also is justice. He's also wrath. Do not, do not let God's mercy confuse you to say, I thought he was just like me. No, no, God, as a good father, he warns you to a point and then he acts. So Jezreel, destruction, lo ruhamah, no mercy. End of verse six, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. God is faithful to his covenant pain, and he's also faithful to his covenant promise. Look at the next verse. Look at how these are together. Verse seven, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah. Now, you gotta understand, the 10 tribes of the north are called Israel, and the two tribes of the south are called Judah. And he says, I will have compassion on the two tribes of the south. Of all the kings, you got Solomon, and then you had Rehoboam, who split the kingdom. Of all the kings after Rehoboam, of the ten tribes of the north, how many were godly kings? Any, any guesses? Zero. Or in Hebrew we say, <laughs> not a one. In the two tribes of the south... There were, people have different numbers, but I believe there were eight out of 22 that were good. They walked in the ways of the Lord, eight out of 22. But the 10 tribes of the north, no. Two tribes of the south, but I will have compassion, verse seven, on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, horsemen. They will know it's me that delivered them. So Assyria, after conquering 
the 10 tribes of the north, he's going uh, to go down to Judah. Sennacherib is going to say to King Hezekiah, surrender. And Hezekiah is going to say, no. And then Sennacherib is going to send his emissary, Rabshakeh. I just like that name, Rabshakeh. Name your, name your next boy if you birth a child. Name him Rabshakeh. <laughs> Rabshakeh is going to come to Hezekiah and say, surrender. And Hezekiah is going to say, no. Hezekiah then goes to his buddy Isaiah, and they have a little Bible study, have a little prayer time, and God gives them words to say to Rabshakeh. Who do you think you're talking to are the words that he says to Rabshakeh. He wakes up the next morning. Rabshakeh wakes up the next morning, and 185,000 Assyrians are dead all around, and the Israelites didn't even raise a hand. Sennacherib will, after that whooping, will go into his temple of his God and have a quiet time, and during that quiet time, his own sons will come in and kill Sennacherib. <laughs> I know that's terrible, terrible. Just a little irony there. All right? This is what God does to his enemy. He sends this kind of message. You don't mess with my kids. Why, why this protection for Judah? Because of the covenant. God had made a covenant to a Judean king named David that he would have a seed, like Abraham's seed, David would have a seed that would sit on the throne of his throne, his King David's throne, forever. I'm going to keep, God says to David, I'm going to keep this little stump. Even though Babylon will come in and judge it and chop it down, there will be a stump. Seventy years later, you will all return. Ultimately, though, this stump will produce, bring forth a root of Jesse. A root of Jesse will go forth, a, a, a suckling. A little sprig will come up in the stump. Incidentally, the Hebrew word for suckling is the root of the word of Nazareth. Isn't that good? We are going to have a Nazarite who will come forth. So the covenant faithfulness to bringing about the Messiah is why God did not destroy Judah. Because they went a harlotting as well. Verse 8. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. So the continuing in their sin, she is continuing in her shame, and each child gets a little worse. Can we do this? Can we, in our sin, just get worse and worse and birth more illegitimate children, more wickedness? Yeah, right? Jezreel, defeat, lo ruhamah, destruction. Now, this next child, verse 9, is lo-ami. It means disowning. How would you like to have a child named that? Disowned. Even before you're born, your name is disowned. The Lord said, name him lo-ami, not my people. I am not your God. And now they will be called in history the ten lost tribes of Israel. Those ten tribes of the north, they go away. They, he will save them. They will have a remnant. They will not be like Sodom and Gomorrah. He will save a few from those ten tribes. And boy, are we glad that we have some of those ten tribes left. Because out of Naphtali, we get a Peter and a James and an Andrew and a Nathaniel. Out of Ishkar, we get a Matthew. And a Bartholomew. Out of Zebulun, we get a John, the island of Patmos, writing the final book of your Bible. No, no. The prostitute represents humanity, in particular Israel, who is unfaithful, using herself illegitimately while involved in illegitimate relationships, producing some illegitimate children. This is what you do whenever you're tempted to sin. A great definition of temptation. And when you're tempted to be unfaithful, here's a great definition. Fulfilling a righteous need 
in an unrighteous way, filling a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Every idol that you place, no matter how good they are, every idol you place between you and God and you worship, anything that gets your praises becomes an idol and it is an illegitimate thing, not worthy of worship because there's one who gives those things. So this is what Israel ended up becoming. They had, like Gomer, the best and still were not satisfied. They took the gifts of God he had given them and they, and they took credit for them. No thanks, no praise, no worship, no honor, no love for God. Verse 10, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sands of the sea. Do you feel the grace there? The sons of Israel, even though I wipe away the 10 tribes and move on, I will leave a remnant and they will come, the people of Jacob will come because of the seed of Jacob. This is, this is the circumcision of the Jews fulfilled. There will come one, his name is Messiah, and he will provide great descendants, which cannot be measured or numbered. This is unreasonable love. Everybody say unreasonable. If God were like us, we would hit the reset button, we'd start over, we'd wipe away these whoring people. But praise the Lord, he didn't do it in your life and he didn't do it in their life. He is an unreasonably loving God. Look at the next part of verse 10. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, that's tough love. He led them and he allowed there to be an accusation that God is a bad God to follow. Look what he did to his kids. I get that every now and again. A handful of times I've disciplined my kids in some public space um, I couldn't wait. I had to discipline him right then because of the situation. And I did it appropriately. I tried to do it pi privately, but somebody saw. And then I've had a handful of times somebody pulled me aside and said, How, you're a bad father disciplining them. I love it when people give you unsolicited advice and criticism. But God was accused of being a harsh God. Look what he did to his own people. That's tough love. Maybe you've had to do that in your own child's life. You've had to do something really tough. Everybody say tough. The unreasonable love of God is unreasonable, yet it is tough. It is tough love. He is willing and wanting to do whatever it takes so that you are not spoiled, so you do not have any God daddy issues. Did you know you can have God daddy issues? Where you have a bad view of God and therefore everything else kind of cascades from there and the, your view about God affects everything else. I had someone... A few weeks ago, say that to me. They said, I don't, I don't believe in God. And I don't believe in what he's, who, who he is. I said, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in because I probably don't believe in him either. Your view of God is leading you to your conclusions. This is the God I believe in who is unreasonable in his love yet tough. Look at the rest of verse 10. It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So the world might say you're not because you're being punished or you're being disciplined, but I say to you, it will be said of you, you are sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel on that great day in the future will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader. Everybody say, one leader. Who is it? Jesus. One leader. And they will go up from the land and great, for great will be the day of Jezreel. There is another battle coming at Jezreel called the Battle of Armageddon. The Jezreel Valley is where the Battle of Armageddon will occur. Say unconditional, say that word, unconditional. Unreasonable yet tough, but always, always unconditional love. 
That's what the prophecy presents. A God whose love is unreasonable yet tough, but always unconditional. You know, when I think about this text, I don't understand why we, I do understand, but I question why we do what we do. I think of Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The question is, why would you ever want to flee from God? Why would you want to run from him? Well, the answer is it's in your nature to run from God. The sin nature inside of you, it is our nature to run from God. But according to Hosea chapter one, it's in God's nature to run after you and you can run all you want, but you cannot outrun God in his love. You cannot outrun God in his love. You might be fighting him. I know there's a number of you right now who are under conviction. You're running from him. You do not want to worship him. You're giving him lip service here today, but you're running from him. You cannot outrun his love. You cannot. He will catch you. No matter what nation you're from, no matter how bad your background, no matter how big your daddy issues, you cannot, you can never run so far as to outrun the love of God. So let me drive this home. Let me drive this home. A couple of quick, quick little ways you could respond to Hosea in this next month. As I read the whole book and study the whole book, let me tell you up front that you can respond well to this book in a proper way. I think of, I think of the story of the woodpecker who's pecking on the tree, right? Just as he flows, flies back, a lightning bolt hits that tree and he looks back and the tree splits down the middle. And after all that noise and after looking, he said, look what I did. He takes credit for it. We can typically be really good at being spiritual woodpeckers. We walk around consciously or subconsciously and say, look at this house that I've bought. Look at this car that I bought. Look at this job that I have. Look at this bride that I got. Look at this career. Look at all that God has done. The only reason you have anything you have is because God's lightning struck your life. So how do you respond? You respond aggressively. That's number one. How are people to respond? God is outrageous in his pursuit of you and you pursue him back. God wants you whatever it takes. He is aggressive, so you be aggressive. This is aggressive. It's not just some simple prayer of salvation. When you ask Jesus to take away your sin, you are saying yes to a divine proposal of a lover, an outrageous lover, and he is aggressive in your life. He wants you to be aggressive in your love affair with him. So this next month, be aggressive as a lover of God. That's what you see in this. Number two, this is personal. This is very personal. God will not tolerate you having false lovers. He wants you alone. This is my story. This is your story. So many times I've tried to satisfy myself with lying idols of self-importance and wealth and good times. Only because my blindness, like Gomer's, I cannot distinguish between lust and true love. This is very, very personal. God will not, will not tolerate very long you to have false lovers if you're his. So take this very personal. You're meant to look at yourself in this mirror of Hosea's life and see a Gomer. I'm Gomer, you're Gomer. But also biblically, this is a book that makes me want to study my Bible because this is the study of the story of the whole Bible. History is his story of a loving desire to make his people the full persons he intended them to be for his pleasure. 
He wants you to court others to him. He wants you to lead others in this biblical song sung by the redeemed to bring others into this love affair. He wants you to know and love and seek your scriptures to bring other people into it, to roll out that scroll from your back pocket and say, thus saith the Lord, this is who God is. At Bethlehem, God entered into the world and showed the world his outrageous pursuit of them, even as wayward as they are. Even as wayward as they are. There's a lot of truth in this book. I hope you'll study it with me. Uh, if you want to, read the next couple of chapters. All right, we'll look at chapter two next week. Let me pray for us. Father, it's precious to see the cross of Jesus Christ paying the price, the full price of my freedom, buying me back. It's precious to see that the story of your love, your heart, your desire is to make your people full people. Lord, at Bethlehem, you entered into the slave market where the whole human race was putting itself up for auction, prostituting itself and its humanity to a to a cheapened life. Yet you said on the cross, I'll pay the full price. Lord, I, I'm here as a pastor, preacher, to tell people that Jesus formed a very strange relationship. He who was holy married those who were unholy to make them holy by his work. And I pray that there would be a lot of amens here today to say amen, that what you're doing in my life, I receive, I accept, I embrace, I get in line with, I see you on your knee in front of me proposing to be mine, and I say yes to your proposal. I pray that that would be a daily thing, not just a once and for all baptism thing, although that's true, but a daily communion to say yes, to come to your table, not the table of this world, not the table of a career, not the table of pleasures and and the fun that this world throws out, even though there is a lot of fun to be had knowing the one who created it all. But Lord, we say yes to you. We come to your table daily. In Jesus' name, amen.